So I used to think it would be better to have all four Gospels uh, in, in one book in chronological order. And I've got one like that. Uh, and, I, and it's nice to read through. But the more I study and I go through a certain book, I realize that's not the way it's intended. The, the authors are, they write a certain style. They have a certain audience that they speak to. They, uh, they have a certain purpose that they're going through as well. And so what we find here with Mark is that Mark is, his is the, the second gospel, and it is the shortest of all four gospels. He gives less stories, he gives less details than, than anyone else. And his way of writing is very brilliant, though. And, and what we find is his sandwich approach at times. So he starts telling a story, and then all of a sudden it's interrupted by another story. It seems completely unrelated. And then all of a sudden you realize that was just his way of highlighting a theme. He's highlighting something for us to see. And, and it's a wonderful thing. He uses irony. He is the master of the unexpected. Uh, every narrative in Mark, with the exception of two, are about Jesus. And the only two that are not are about John the baptizer, who is pointing to Jesus. <laughs> uh, and we're going to actually talk about John this morning. So as we move into this gospel, I want you to erase everything that you know about these stories about Jesus. And I know that's a difficult thing. But, but it's very important because a lot of times we come in, we have our own preconceived ideas of what these stories are about and, and everything else. And I want you to just imagine that you're reading it for the very first time because here's the thing, that's the way Mark intended us to read it. Because we need to understand that he's bringing forth this new teaching with this authority. Something, we're going to see that in a couple of weeks. That new wine has to have new wineskins. And he's bringing us into the drama. He wants us to just, just wrap ourselves into this drama and understand its meaning. So let's pray as we get ready to uh, move into the text itself. Father, we come to you this day. We are so excited to learn more about your son, to learn about your presence that has now come among us. Father, we are truly grateful and we are humbled. And Father, just continue to let these passages just to, to sink our hearts and, and to bring us our minds and our understanding in ways that, that Father, we just have not seen. We know that this, you are God, you are so much deeper than we are, and we know that you just continue, can continue to bring us deeper and deeper into things that we, we just have not understood. And, and Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for your goodness and your wisdom. And so, Father, we pray this, and we pray that you bless us in this, this study. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This very first opening verse, okay? Is there anything in there that just stands out to you? Is there anything there that may draw your mind to other things? I mean, what, what is your first impression? Okay, in the beginning, Christ was there, all right? Anybody else got anything here? In the beginning of what? Okay, the beginning of the gospel. Okay, in the beginning, does that phrase have any, anything, what? Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's something that you'll find interesting. And this is the first thing I thought about when I saw this was Genesis 1-1. And I think that's what we're supposed to see. There are four books 
in, the, in all the Bible where the very first word, okay, that's in the Hebrew and then in the Greek, there, the very first word is beginning. So Genesis 1 and Hosea, chapter 1, verse 1, and then Mark 1 and verse 1, and John 1 and verse 1, the two Gospels. And if you, and he really pushes it even harder in John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so forth. So, so if he's trying to draw us to this idea of in the beginning of Genesis 1 and verse 1, what is the correlation? What do you think he's trying to draw us to? Okay, Jesus is God. What else? What? Trinity. What else? What? Go ahead. Yes. So in the beginning, God created the earth. In Mark 1 and verse 1, in the beginning is the gospel. The beginning here, this is the beginning of the gospel, which is the new creation. Ah, new creation. So what we find here is really, uh, it's really powerful. So for Mark, in his introduction of Jesus, this, what is happening here, as he starts off this book, it is no less momentous of what's happening right now than the creation of the entire universe. Okay, do you see this? Now, he uses an interesting word. It's the beginning of what? Gospel, right? All right, we've heard this word a lot, right? What does it mean? Somebody said it. Good news. Next week, we're going to have to get everybody closer. I'm getting old. Uh, it's good news. Isn't that great? Now, in order to really understand a word, you need to know where it comes from, how it's used. We use it and we say, oh, well, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. The Hebrew concept, um, as well as the, in Greek literature, this word gospel was used in, after a victory on a battlefield, and they would send out messengers to tell about the victory. Here's a great example, 1 Samuel 31, after, after uh, Israel is defeated by the Philistines, it says, so they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry what? Good news, okay? So, so we see this, this first little concept. About 10 years before Jesus was, was born into our world, um, there was a birthday party for Caesar Augustus. He's the emperor. Now, the Caesars, they were believed by the Roman people to be gods. And one of the writings of this birthday from 10 years before, it says, speaks of Caesar Augustus, that his birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. You see what Mark's doing here, right? What does he say? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what? Son of God. Okay, see that? This is the good news. 
The first century Jews, they understood the gospel, though. If you really want to understand gospel, they understood it through Isaiah chapter 40. So keep your place here. Go over to Isaiah chapter 40. While you're turning there, I'm going to set up uh, what is about to happen, okay? Uh, it will change It will change everything. It, it, it changes everything as you read Mark chapter 1 in these first few verses. It changes everything. So here we see, uh, let's think about our reading as a church, right? So God created the heavens and the earth, and then we see uh, the fall, right? And there's a promise in the fall that there will be a seed that will come from woman, right? She's going to crush the head of the serpent. Well, after the fall, what do we see? One fall right after the other. Till finally God chose a family, right? What family? Come on, what family? What? Abraham. Yeah, this is simple stuff. And, and so from his seed, Abraham's seed, will come the seed of woman that will crush the head of, of the snake, right? But then we get to the beginning of Exodus. What is the, what's the situation of, of, uh, of um, Israel? Yeah, they're slaves, right? So they are, they are slaves to the Egyptians. God sends who? Moses. And Moses is going to go in and he's going to help deliver them. And, and he brings them out into the wilderness and brings them to Mount Sinai. Remember that? And it's there that he gives them a covenant. He says, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. He gives them the Ten Commandments. That is a, that's the covenant. Um, and, and it's just this powerful thing. Now, you just keep going through history, and we see that this nation, they eventually become a kingdom, right? And every kingdom needs a king. And, and so who is, who is the great king of Israel, the, the most famous Ah, very good. David, right? So we have David. And if you remember when we studied First and Second Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is this great covenant that God makes with David. And what was it? That there will be an eternal king and an eternal kingdom that's going to come through his seed, the very seed that's going to crush the head of Satan. Now, after King David, there were many more kings. How did that work out? Mm, not so good. Till eventually, we find exile. So Isaiah chapter 40 is, right, is written to these people who are now in exile. They've lost everything. The holy city of Jerusalem has been crushed. The temple has been destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat, the very presence of God, it's lost. And they are beginning to wonder, what is our future? This is what we've known our whole lives, but now we're in exile. What is our future? And so what he does here in Isaiah 40 is he tells them, this is your future. And so verses 1 and 2, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry for her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double all her sins. So he says to them, at this point, what does he say about their sins? Look at verse 2. Pardoned, right? Wow. This is, this is big, okay? Because they've been in exile. They know why they're there. Um, I want you to keep your finger here because we're going to come back to Isaiah. Let's just read a couple of more verses in Mark and then we'll come back. All right. Does anyone have a marginal note, notation there from those two passages? Yeah, Malachi 3 1, Isaiah 40. And, and by the way, the Malachi, where it says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, it comes from Exodus 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Okay? So what we find here is Mark gives these blending of scriptures. And Jesus will do this. This it's a brilliant way of, of saying something. And, and that's exactly what uh, is going on here. Now, one of the things that we have not talked about is Mark's primary uh, audience. Does anyone know who Mark is speaking with? Who, who's he writing to? Yeah, Gentiles. Almost, almost every expert tells you, and I think maybe every one of them will say, yes, the Gospel of Mark is written to Roman Gentiles. So here's my question. Here's this book. It's for, it's for Gentiles. And the very first thing he does is do what? He takes us back in history. And it's like, why is he telling them this? Because there's a reason. Because they need to understand what he is saying and what he is about to say. It is, it is, it can only be understood as the completion of something that happened with Israel. It has to be linked with Israel's past and their history. Now, that said, the Gospel of Mark has less Old Testament quotations than any other gospel. But he does quote them. And he also, he'll come upon certain words in Hebrew and Aramaic, and he translates it for them also why we know this to be true and then he'll also he alludes to these various jewish customs and so forth and he'll explain those customs at times because he knows who his audience uh is here so we're gentiles we're removed two thousand years from these folks we're not living in lands that they lived and and know the stories uh probably even the way many of them had already heard those stories and so it's important for us to get this. Isaiah 40 is a great example because Mark opens his gospel back here. Now, the question that we have to ask is, why? Why does he open in Isaiah 40? Let's go back. All right, Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries. All right, listen to this. A voice cries in the wilderness... Prepare the way of Yahweh. That's the Lord. 
make straight in the desert a highway for our God. All right. Does that sound familiar? Any portion of that sound familiar? should sound familiar to what we just read in Mark. Um, so Isaiah calls for something to be built. What does he call to be built? A highway, right? There's a highway. Who is the highway being prepared for? What? Well, it's going to be for us, but who is it for? It's for God. It's for Yahweh. Yahweh, build this road for Yahweh because he's coming. Now watch verse 4. He, tells, he even goes into, and, and here's how you build a highway. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And, and then he goes on. He says, and the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, and the, mu- the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Don't miss this point. He says, Yahweh is coming. Yahweh is coming. Build a highway for my presence to come. It is a royal procession for a king. Isaiah says that there is going to be a messenger, right? There is a messenger who will come. And he is going to prepare this highway. He is preparing. When you see him, Yahweh is not far behind. Okay? And and this is a big deal. Why would that have been a big deal in Isaiah chapter 40? Come on. Where are they? We already talked about this. They're in exile. The holy city is gone. The temple is gone. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God is gone. And he is saying there's coming a messenger that will prepare the way for God to come again. His presence is coming. Okay? Where does this messenger come? Oh, well, let me, let me, we're not finished. Let's go to verse 9. Got to go back, verse 9. So verse 9, he says, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald what? Herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of what? Good news. uh, He says, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. Watch this. Behold your God. You want to know what Mark means by gospel, good news. This is it. The good news is that God is coming. Herald it, right? This is uh, verse 10. Watch this. He says, Behold, 
the Lord. Now here, this is one of the reasons I like to use Yahweh instead of Lord, because this Lord is not the same as Yahweh. Here it means one who is a ruler. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Folks, this is kingly language. Do you see it? He's Lord. He, his right hand, he comes and he rules. And notice, it also says he's bringing justice, this recompense. So those who have lived their lives, um, how, how they have been living their lives, you know, it, it is determined when the king comes if there's going to be punishment or if there's going to be rewards. And these people would have been scared of that. You know why? Why would they have been a little worried about that? Where are they? Exile. Why are they in exile? Sin, idolatry, corruption. But then watch this. Okay, you ready for this? He just, here's this king. He's coming. He's bringing recompense and justice. Verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The one who's coming down the highway is compassionate. He is merciful. He is coming for people who are oppressed. He's coming for people who are weak and they are vulnerable. Does any of this remind you of Jesus and his ministry? He heals the sick. He's going out to people that no one else paid attention to. He touches people no one else would touch. And John really picks up the idea of him being the good shepherd. So, that's what Mark wants us to think. So where does the, uh, the messenger come? Where does he arrive? Mike, I think I'm, oh, there it is. In the wilderness. All right. We've been reading through, through the Hebrew scriptures over the last several uh, months. Does the wilderness have any significance at all? We don't think of, when we say wilderness, in our concept, the wilderness is a, is a dry place. It's a place we don't want to go, right? When you read it in, in the First Testament, what we find is the wilderness is a place of deliverance. It's a place where the people go, God's people go to be delivered. Who went to the wilderness to be delivered? Anybody? Who, who went in the Hebrew scriptures? Who went to the wilderness to find deliverance? Okay, Israel. What about Moses first, right? He kills an Egyptian. He's headed out. God sends him back, delivers him. And by the way, the land of Midian is in, is in the wilderness of Sinai and brings him right back to the wilderness. He's, he's delivering them from slavery. Um, 
How about David? We talk about David. Did he go to the wilderness? Why did he go to the wilderness? Yeah, to escape Saul. He goes to a wilderness another time when he's king. Why does he go there? To escape Absalom. Remember this, right? Elijah is running from, from Queen Jezebel. She's wanting to kill him. He goes to the wilderness. Folks, see this. These, these passages are constantly pointing us to something. So when it says, you come out to the wilderness, it's a place of deliverance. And guess who's coming out into the wilderness? The, the one who's coming down the highway. Why? Because we need deliverance. You see this? This, this is, Hosea says this is a place of hope. It's, it's a positive place. So suddenly we find out who the messenger is that the prophet spoke of. Who is it? It's John. We know that. This is John the baptizer. But there's something interesting about the description because, listen, this is what Mark's doing. He is, he is letting him become a... Um, he, he's, he's acting out a character in Hebrew Scriptures. Does anyone know who John the Baptist is, is mimicking? Elijah. They even thought, here's John. What then? Are you Elijah? Saying of John. And it's like, well, come on. When I read this, why, why do you think of, because he dresses just like him. He's got a garment of hair, a belt of leather around his waist. Does that sound familiar? And get this. You remember, um, he... Uh, John the baptizer went after Herod. Remember that? Herod's wife, Herodias, didn't like it. She ended up, and ended up killing him, right? Because he was very critical of King Herod. Well, guess what? Um, and, and this is, this, is um, this. But also, Elijah was critical of who? King Ahab. Yeah, King Ahab. And what did his wife, King Jezebel, want to do? She wanted his head too. So what we find here is these, these similarities. And, and even at that, Luke tells us that this guy John has, has come with the spirit and power of Elijah. So where is he when this is being spoken? He's out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. Guess where Elijah hung out? Folks, if you know that story, you see this, it's like, oh. But, but we're like, well, who cares? I mean, seriously, why, why does that matter to us about Elijah? Go to Malachi chapter 4. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set this up as well. So the prophet Malachi, he lived 100 years after exile, Okay. So Isaiah 40 is directly to those in exile. Malachi is out here somewhere. They're back in Jerusalem. The temple has been re rebuilt for a while. The walls are back. But guess what? Isaiah 40 has not come to pass. The one who's come to pardon sins, the messenger has not arrived. This good news of justice and, and compassion, we haven't seen it. In fact, there is corruption. There is injustice. 
And the people are blaming God. And they're like, and, it's, and really that whole thing is about these people. And we come to the very end, we finally find the positive. It's the last few verses. So Malachi 4, verse 5, this is what he says. Behold, I will send you who? Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord does what? Comes. I'm sending Elijah before Yahweh comes. The first century Jews were anticipating Elijah's return. His messenger um, is supposed to come before showing up personally. So what is Mark describing? A prophet like Elijah has shown up in the wilderness to prepare the highway for the coming of God. What is significant about the Jordan River? Anything happened in Israel's history at the Jordan River? Do what? Yeah, how did they cross the Jordan River? Uh, yeah, you know, some people don't realize that the Red Sea is not the only thing that's been split open. So when they go into the wilderness to find deliverance, they pass through the waters of the Red Sea. Now to get into God's blessings, the promised land, the thing he had been promising all the way back to Abraham, guess what? They pass through the waters again to get to the blessings. And by the way, I do have a Joshua 3. What is John preaching? Baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Baptism was a very unusual command to these Jews. Because for them, what that meant was if a, if a Gentile if a Gentile wanted to come over to Judaism, there were certain things they had to do. They had to, the men had to be circumcised, and they all had to be baptized. He is telling these Jews that he's calling to the wilderness, you need to be baptized. And the washings that they had, who, who was it that was washed in Israel? The defiled. And, and these people didn't see themselves as defiled. Mark is telling them, John actually is telling them, all of Israel is defiled. You must come to the wilderness and prepare to meet God. This is what's happening. You've got to pass through the waters once again because God is coming. Now, okay, this goes back to your reading in Exodus. Okay, this, this is just so awesome. So they are delivered they pass through the Red Sea. They come out to Mount Sinai. And, and God, tells, God tells Moses to prepare the people. Does anyone know, remember why they were to be prepared? I know it's, I know it's Exodus and we're all the way in Deuteronomy. Because God... God was coming down. Do you remember this? He says he's coming down. I want you to prepare them. They are to be purified and they are to be washed. 
Oh. So what's happening here? What's John doing? He's preparing the people through washing, through purification. That's what repentance is about for the arrival of Yahweh on the highway. And Mark, when he focuses in on John's preaching in verses seven, uh, in verse seven, what is he preaching about the one who's coming? He says he's greater. He's mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to un, unloosen the straps of his sandals. And then he says in verse 8 that he's coming with a baptism. What is the baptism that's coming? The Holy Spirit. The very presence of God. Folks, this is a major declaration because if you read the Hebrew Scriptures, who gives the Spirit? Who is it? Who gives the Spirit? God. Who does Mark say, or John say, is going to bring the Spirit? Jesus. The Son of God. The Son of God. Jesus, the one who's coming down the highway, he comes with the power and privilege of God. The dawn of salvation has begun. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he says, prepare for his presence. Now, we could have taken these first eight verses and we could have just said, uh, John said that uh, one is coming and we know that's Jesus that's coming and there's a baptism there and, and uh, we could debate on baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins and everything else or we could just go straight to Isaiah and we could say this is this. I, it may not be for you, but I, I am absolutely, I am humbled by this. So the one who's going to show up next week is the one hundred years before had prophesied his coming. The one who is the seed since the fall of mankind that will crush the head of the snake and to save the nations. That's the one coming. And he's coming to take us out of exile. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we are so humbled by your presence. Father, forgive us when we take it for granted. Father, forgive us when we, we lose sight of just who Jesus is. Father, we, we thank you for coming into our world 
We thank you, Father, for saving us. And Father, we thank you that you've provided a means as we prepare for your coming. And Father, we thank you for those who are your people, for your very presence in the Spirit of God who now dwells in us and lives in us and with us and guides us and leads us. And Father, forgive us when we take that for granted. You are the Holy One. You are the one that the world has been waiting for since the beginning of mankind and its fall. And so, Father, we come and we just thank you and we praise you. And we ask, Father, that our worship this morning will be acceptable in your sight. We pray, Father, that it will be worthy, uh, at least in a human standpoint, worthy of you. And, Father, we, we pray these things in the name of of your Son, our Savior, the one who came down that highway, Jesus, Messiah. Amen. Okay. There's a couple of minutes if somebody has any questions. I know I'm covering a lot of material. Yes. Yeah, I think that that is something that came later. Uh, probably in the intertestament period would be my guess. I would have to look it up. Um, I mean, we know that there were sojourners and foreigners and so forth who came into the land, but they had to basically give their allegiance to God. Um, but I think the idea of circumcision and baptism and all that kind of stuff, I think that came in the intertestament period um, and part of their tr traditions. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He had, yeah, he's the one that had leprosy. And he was told, if you'll go dip in the Jordan River, ah, Jordan River, uh, dip in the Jordan River seven times, that he would be cleansed. No, I, I do think that's, I, I think that's what he points out in John when he says, it's better that I leave because the Spirit will not come until I leave. And then we see in Acts 2, um, I think it may be around verse 33, somewhere in there. It says he's now sitting at the right hand of God and he has sent the Spirit. And, and that's happening all in Acts where the Spirit has finally come. Right. Yes. And, and who, did, who, did, who did Jesus baptize? There's a trick question. One of the Gospels says he did not baptize anyone. Now, they're being baptized, but Jesus is not the one doing it. And I think there's a pretty good reason for that. You remember even Paul talking about, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Not that he didn't believe in baptism. It's just they were having a problem with, oh, guess who baptized me? And can you imagine if Jesus baptized you? Well, I was baptized by Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and so... You know, we're to be enamored by Jesus, and our baptism is what brings us into his presence comes here, comes to us, um, and it's, it's not something special for those who are baptized by Jesus. Um, his presence comes. Yeah, I believe so. I believe so. I could be wrong. Um, anytime you start talking about the Holy Spirit, there's so much 
there. Um, but but I, I think that's what it is. I think that's what has been building up. In fact, we could, in fact, I think this was a shocking statement even at that because of, we didn't even look at Ezekiel and Jeremiah who speaks about the spirit coming. And um, it, this, is, this was huge. This was in the new covenant would come. Yes. Which ones? Uh, it's in the Gospel of John. Um, yeah, it, maybe even chapter 16. Um, just read the book of John. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it, I think there's like three chapters that he talks about this with his disciples. And, um, but yeah, 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 uh, I know chapter 16, chapter 14 has, both of those have about the spirit coming, and I wanted to say there was a third as well, but anyway, that gets you in the kind of general area. Well, yeah, no more, no more, no less confusing to Gentiles, you know, but it was important I mean, Mark saw that this was important, these Gentiles get this, because they need to see something more than a man who came into the world and is now the son of God. They, they need to see the history, because the history, that's what puts us in awe. That's what puts us in awe. So he does. He, 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 Mark tells these Gentiles, and he explains things to them, because they didn't know, you know, it's just like, just like these um, Jewish traditions you'll see in there, he'll all of a sudden, he'll just say, okay, well, they did this because. So, yeah, we have to, we have to do the explaining. 